1: Hello and welcome to New Books in African Studies. I'm your host, Nicholas Walton. In every programme, we talk about a new book connected to Africa and hear from the author. In this programme, that book is Migrants and Strangers in an African City, Exile, Dignity, Belonging. And the author is Bruce Whitehouse. The book is a fascinating study of something almost so commonplace that it's taken for granted, the migration of people from one country in Africa to another. I hope you enjoy the interview. Well, joining me on the line all the way over from uh, Pennsylvania is Bruce Whitehouse, the author of Migrants and Strangers in an African City Exile, Dignity, Belonging. Welcome, Bruce.
0: Thank you.
1: It's good to be here. Uh, Thoroughly enjoyed your book, and it's about one of the the big themes of Africa, I suppose, even though you concentrate on quite a specific um, area, and that is, of course, the the lives of the migrants within Africa who move from one country to another. So can we start off with you just telling us a little bit about yourself and how you became so interested in this subject? Because this is something that, that actually took you to Congo Brazzaville, where you lived for quite a while.
0: Right. But the story actually begins a few years earlier and in a different country. Uh, In the late 1990s, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Mali, in West Africa. And I got to know uh, a lot of people there who had relatives living abroad. And I think I knew about the sort of Malian diaspora, if you will, in France and and, uh, to a lesser extent here in the United States. But I really didn't know that much about the people who left Mali for other African countries. And uh, where I served as a Peace Corps volunteer, really every single household had a son or a brother or an uncle, or, or usually a male relative, but often female relatives as well, who were living down in Cote d'Ivoire, especially in Abidjan. Um, and I came to realize that. All of these households, all of these families, were embedded in these transnational networks through which people uh, moved, and and information, and money, and goods, um, and that they weren't necessarily sort of showing up on the radar screens of of uh, say journalists and academics in in Western countries. Um, and the more I, I learned about these networks the more fascinated I, I became and it was particularly when I was doing my first research as an anthropologist in Mali I was studying uh what we call a migrant sending community about a hundred kilometers 160 kilometers north of Bamako a uh, very small town sort of out on the edge of the desert and I found the the most popular destination abroad for people who had left that community was Côte d'Ivoire, so that wasn't surprising. But the second most popular was Congo Brazzaville. And that really surprised me because all I knew about Congo at the time was that uh it had gone through some nasty civil wars in the nineteen nineties and I really didn't understand what it was that was drawing people from, you know, the plains of Mali two thousand miles away to go live and work in brazzaville so that was really the origin of this book project and and i later did extended fieldwork in brazzaville uh, living and and spending my days with members of this migrant population and and there i found it wasn't just malians it was people coming from guinea and and uh, senegal and uh... many other parts of west africa so in my book uh... migrants and strangers in an african city i try to refer to these migrants sort of generically as West Africans, uh, although the the majority of them were Malians and the majority of the Malians came from a single ethnic group. So there there were certain uh, aspects of the population that that uh, made it sort of tempting to generalize about them, say, as members of the Sininke group or as Malians, but um, as an anthropologist I, I, I try to be very cautious about how I generalize and how I how I label a particular group of people.
1: Absolutely. Um, I know that it, it's obviously a very, very difficult thing to measure. But are there any numbers that you can, you can give us that either put the the whole um, issue of of migration between countries into perspective, or or, or perhaps just this particular uh, type that you looked at, which is from Mali and other countries in West Africa to Congo Brazzaville.
0: Well, I'll start with that. With that one migration stream, and then sort of work my way out. Uh, there are no good, reliable uh, statistics about how many uh, immigrants there are in Congo, Brazzaville, for example. Um, many uh, of the West African migrants who are there come with a temporary visa and they overstay. Uh, many of them cross clandestinely without ever having their papers checked. There's a widespread fear among the migrants that if you, if you sort of pass through official channels and, you know, you get your visa and, and your paperwork in order, you're still going to be asked to, to pay bribes because you're a foreigner. Therefore, uh, many of them don't see the virtue or the necessity of, of regularizing their status, and they, they just live under the radar uh, as uh, clandestine or undocumented uh, migrants there. But estimates from the the Malian consulate in Bamako, or I'm sorry, in Brazzaville, was that there were at least twenty-eight to 30,000 people of Malian origin uh, living in the city of Brazzaville and uh, several more thousand living in other parts of Congo. So I would expect, in terms of the West African population, it's probably several tens of thousands. But this would be uh, a very small number compared to the number of immigrants, of course, living in Cote d'Ivoire, which is uh, well into the millions. I believe the foreign-born population in in Cote d'Ivoire is something like uh, 25 or 30 percent of the total population. Um, And around the world, when we look at migration flows uh, between developing countries, between poor countries. again we don't have reliable statistics but it seems quite plausible that the numbers of people moving between uh, developing countries is equal to the numbers of people moving from developing countries to wealthy countries in the northern hemisphere
1: and when we're talking about the people in Brazzaville of West African extraction uh, what kind of age range, what kind of generational age are we looking at? Are, uh, is it people going temporarily of working age, you know, especially males, and then coming back home? Or does it turn out to be something uh, far more you know, intergenerational?
0: This is something I write about in, in one of the chapters of the book. The chapter is called Transnational Kinship. And I try to resist having a typology of migrants are breaking them down into discrete categories but at the same time I think it, it can be helpful to think about differences of age and uh, uh, maybe economic status and marital status and gender when you're when you're talking about this migrant population there's certainly a large number of unaccompanied males who are relatively young let's say in their twenties or thirties or possibly even their late teens um, and these are people that uh I use the, the, the term aventurier. It comes from the French for just sort of an adventurer, a, a a migrant who goes out to seek his fortune. Um and they're doing unskilled labor or they are uh assistants in uh retail shops or they're selling at stalls in the marketplace. They're they're fairly far down on the social and economic scale. Um but then you also have more established people who are merchants, who are shopkeepers, who own businesses, who have been there for quite a while. Uh, they tend to be male. Again, there are a few females in that, in that group, um, but they're also more settled. They have their families with them in many cases. Uh, a few sort of leave their families behind in, in West Africa and, and maybe go back to visit them once a year, but the vast majority of them once they're established in Brazzaville, they bring their spouse, usually their wife, and sometimes multiple wives because polygamy is not uncommon. They'll bring them to join them. Uh, if they have children, sometimes they'll leave them in their in their community of origin back in West Africa. Sometimes they'll bring them to join them in in Congo, um, and then you have the even more senior members of the population, some of whom. Uh, are the children or even grandchildren of uh, migrants from West Africa? So they're members of the second or third migrant generation, and they're much more integrated into the host population. Uh, they have a lot of contacts. They tend to be somewhat more wealthy and and uh, settled. Um, and it's actually the the interconnection and interdependency between these different segments of the migrant population um, that sort of gives it vitality and uh, commercial uh, success.
1: I wanted to pick up on Brazzaville itself and and, and look a little bit about that. Obviously, uh, there, were, there were connections going back to the French em- Empire, and you talk about uh, migration uh, there of labor, so that people could be soldiers, messengers, laborers, porters, etc. And... Uh, then it was a uh, uh, by about 1985. So we're talking quite a bit after the colonial period. Uh, Congo Brazzaville was doing relatively well. You talk about a, a per capita GDP of around a thousand dollars. But that was the period where things started to go uh, a little bit bad for uh, Congo Brazzaville with armed conflict, violence, and a decline afterwards. And by the time uh, that we're talking about, which was a few years ago, that where you, where you actually lived in Brazzaville. Um, things had reached the point where there was one international study, not necessarily relating to, uh, it was relating, I believe, to in, to um, you know Western uh, office workers, uh, expats, as you might call them. Uh, but that particular survey uh, rated Brazzaville as the world's worst city. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that, please?
0: Right. That survey was published in 2003, and it was by a British uh, human resources consulting firm called Mercer. They do the survey every year um uh, after shortly after two thousand three they stopped i think publicizing the bottom end of their rankings. They just would uh announce the press releases that detailed the 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 best cities to live in. but at the time in two thousand three uh Brazzaville was ranked right at the bottom, and just above it were cities like uh, Baghdad and Kabul, Afghanistan, and also Pointe Noire, which is Congo's second city, the the economic capital on the coast. And when this survey came out in two thousand three, I, I had recently completed this initial research that I'd done in Mali, in which I'd found that Brazzaville was a very common migrant destination. So it only sort of increased my curiosity, and sort of ratcheted up that that seeming contradiction that this is an unlikely destination and yet people are traveling thousands of miles and crossing multiple state boundaries to to go there so um, I found that trying to answer the question of of why they were doing so was a very complicated process and it entails a lot of historical explanation as you uh, as you mentioned it goes back to the French colonial period it was the French who in effect introduced people from from the Western Sahel from what is today Mali and Senegal and Guinea the French uh, colonizers introduced them to the Congo Basin they brought them there as uh, skilled labor they brought them there as uh, colonial infantrymen and uh, Once that contact was made, once that initial introduction was made by the French, West Africans found that there were opportunities that they could exploit. There were commercial opportunities, there were labor opportunities. They, in effect, uh, used that introduction and that connection that the French had made for their own purposes and to pursue their own agendas. And that's the trajectory of that migration flow that I was very interested to, to study as I was researching this book.
1: What we ought to talk about now I suppose is is uh is about the roles and functions and the jobs that uh, West Africans would travel to Brazzaville to do. Um, and what I found interesting about the book was that uh, it, it, it entails getting a real understanding for what happens in the marketplace in Brazzaville, all of the different roles and functions and all of the different economic uh, positions within the, the, the marketplace and why that allowed people from West Africa to, to, to step into those functions. So, so could you draw a bit of a picture of that, please?
0: sure Uh, it's possible to go through the marketplace in brazzaville and buy most of your uh... necessities and your foodstuffs and and your imported goods without ever doing business with a congolese merchant Um, certain sectors of the retail economy in brazzaville are completely dominated by foreign traders and and in particular by west africans the west africans are generally selling most of the imported manufactured goods, the, the things that are brought in from China, although the Chinese, interestingly enough, have moved into that sector somewhat now as well. Um, the Lebanese who play a much uh, more visible role in in West African countries have a fairly small footprint in Brazzaville. They have some of the more higher end businesses and hotels and things like that. But for the most part, the the regular retail commerce is left to for, to African foreigners, uh, particularly West Africans, but also Chadians and people from across the river in the DRC. Uh, there's some Angolans, there's some uh, people from the Central African Republic, uh, and from even further afield. So you have a very uh, cosmopolitan marketplace in which uh, people from all these different places are coming together. And uh, we found in addition to the the, the retailer, the retail merchants, the shopkeepers, and that sort of thing, you also have skilled laborers like uh, blacksmiths. Uh, the the person who welded the the steel door for the house that we moved into was a, a, a blacksmith from Guinea. Uh, you had uh, carpenters and tailors as well who had come from West African countries. So. Uh, it's a it's a fairly large portion of the of the retail economy there in Brazzaville that is peopled by uh, immigrant entrepreneurs.
1: And why wasn't this done by uh, Congolese themselves? Why were these jobs filled by outsiders?
0: That's a very good question and it's one that Congolese are constantly asking themselves. They want to know what is it that these West Africans have or what is it that they do that enables them to dominate these trades so well? Why can't we compete with them? And there are various theories about that, including that the the West Africans, uh, many Congolese, believe that the West Africans have sort of corrupted uh, the Congolese government to the point that the that they've constituted sort of a a, a mafia-like organization uh, that pays the 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 government to. Maintain its monopolistic presence, I don't think there's much truth to that, uh, but uh, I do think that the answer to explaining their success is 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 a very complicated one, and it has to do with uh, not only the sort of initial boost that the West Africans and other foreigners got from the French during the colonial period, and the French preferred to deal with these sort of middlemen uh, whom they found much more dynamic and and uh Uh, Sort of better subjects than than the local Congolese, but it also has to do with the the social structures in which the entrepreneurs and their customers are embedded, and this is true in any location. Uh, And I found even in uh, in the small town in Mali where I did my initial research, the shopkeepers tended to come from someplace else. They weren't necessarily from other countries, but they were from other. Villages or from other regions of the country and I think there's a reason for that which is that when you are a stranger trying to do business that gives you a certain latitude that you wouldn't have as an entrepreneur in your home community you're allowed to deny people credit for example you're you're allowed to uh, to be a good uh entrepreneur and looking out for yourself and your bottom line and putting that ahead of your your social contacts and, and uh your family relations and things like that. For a local entrepreneur, somebody who wants to run a business in their own hometown, uh it can be very difficult to fend off the constant requests from kin. And from close friends and people who know you and who trust you and who say, I'm in a desperate uh, state right now and it would really help me if you could just loan me some money or if you could uh, sell me these goods on credit or give my give my son a job or something like that, that pressure is unrelenting. And when people migrate out of their home communities, whether they migrate abroad or to another place within their own country, um, they're able to disembed themselves from from those kin networks somewhat, and they're able to uh, assume a little more control over the expenses that they have to make.
1: Uh, the kinship obligation is is uh, almost an ever present whenever we're talking about uh, many Africa's uh, many societies throughout Africa. Uh, you, you mentioned that uh, escaping some of these kinship obligations is one of the key drivers. Uh, as you've just mentioned, it's it's a key driver of of emigration, so that you can make your fortune elsewhere. Um, and you you mentioned that other forms of escape, as well as emigration, are concealing success or uh, religious groupings which allowed you, which allow you to, to cloud over some of the kinship uh, links.
0: Right. Uh, in effect you, you have to, if you, if you don't manage to conceal your wealth, and I think everybody does that to some extent, to, to put a little something aside without uh, their friends and relations knowing about it, um, it's possible to move out of your social group either spatially physically to pick yourself up and go someplace else or in a social structural sort of sense to join a different community within your own hometown so the people who in muslim countries uh, when uh, there was uh, an introduction of what's often been called uh, wahhabi islam half a century ago uh, many of those who first joined this uh, new uh, approach to the faith were themselves merchants and shopkeepers and um, in Christian societies in Africa uh, those who converted to evangelical forms of uh, Christianity which preach a very kind of individualistic uh, you know, modern form of, of the subject who is supposed to b- break off ties with with kin, particularly if those kin are not members of the church. Uh, these all provide, these different religious organizations all provide their their members with uh, a way of sort of extricating themselves, disembedding themselves from some of those obligations that they feel might overpower their attempts to set up businesses and to, to Uh, To run an enterprise. So this is by no means something that's specific to the West Africans living in Brazzaville. It's a phenomenon you see all around Africa and indeed in in other parts of the world as well.
1: When you're in Brazzaville, you you noted that uh, many of the migrants there were more observant of a particular faiths, for instance, uh, the Islamic prayers throughout the day than than their than their uh, kinfolk left at home. Uh, did you? Uh, what are your conclusions there?
0: Well, it's also very common when you study immigrant populations to find an increase in religiosity, and it doesn't matter if they're Christians or Muslims or Jews or, or Hindus or whatever they happen to be. Once they find themselves in a foreign land, their religion becomes much more important to them collectively. It helps them uh, sort of maintain a a sense of community and and shared identity. But I found more than that, there's a certain, uh, particularly for these West African Muslims in Brazzaville, there's a certain advantage conveyed by the regular prayers, and not just the fact that they're praying five times a day, but the fact that they're going to the mosque to pray five times a day. In Mali, where I've also spent a lot of time, uh, it's quite rare to find somebody who goes to the mosque five times a day to pray. Uh, and if you find someone like that, it's either usually a, a, an imam who, who leads the prayer, or it's, it's an old man who's retired and doesn't have so many uh, demands on his time. But uh, in Brazzaville, most of the sort of middle-aged men that I knew, the merchants, the, the business owners, the shopkeepers, uh, would actually stop what they were doing uh, whenever it was time for, for the call to prayer, and they would do their ablutions, and they would walk to the mosque, which was generally within about a five- or ten-minute walk from where they were. Uh, and and the mosque subsequently was... Uh, a a big part of their lives, and and the the mosques in Brazzaville served as very important nodes for the uh, West African population to a degree that they they really don't in a place like Bamako or or even Dakar. Of course, they have tremendous social, cultural, religious importance in those communities, but in a place like Brazzaville, where where Muslims are in the minority and where they sort of feel themselves uh, surrounded by this Majority Christian population, the mosque became an important place just to see each other and to come together and exchange information, and sort of remind themselves of who they were and and uh, what group they belonged to. And if somebody hadn't been coming to prayers and wasn't seen for a few days, uh, people would start to ask questions. People would start to wonder. It's almost like a, a way of performing roll call on a regular basis, so you can see. Who your your members are and and how many they are and and uh, um, how uh, how good they are about attending their prayer. So somebody who maybe has fallen off in their attendance at mosque can expect to get a gentle nudge from their friends and neighbors saying, Hey, we haven't seen you in a few days. You you better start coming again
1: so so it uh, performs a quite an important socializing role within the community um, I was I was wondering how that pushes on to questions of identity as well uh, often if you're a, a group elsewhere within a, a larger community it's it's it does strange things to your sense of identity sometimes it makes it stronger Uh was that your experience when you were in Brazzaville
0: I, I had a a term that that I sometimes used when I was explaining uh Sort of what it felt like to be living among, particularly on, among Malian migrants in Brazzaville, and when I would talk with people in Mali or with with Americans who had been to Mali, I would describe this immigrant community in in Brazzaville as a a, a kind of que Mali. It was it was like a step more than Mali. People there um, tended to dress; they were much more likely to dress in what would be considered you know, good Malian clothing. The women would, would, uh, wear their, their wax print dresses or their bazin outfits. The men would, would often wear clothing that were sort of visibly West African and Muslim. Congolese like to wear Western clothes, uh, particularly, you know, the designer brands, the, the, the cult of elegance is very well known in Brazzaville and in Kinshasa. Um, and they actually refer to the, uh, uh, what Westerners just think of as as kind of African clothing—the the the, the boubous and kaftans with the embroidery on it, made of wax print cloth or or damask, uh, bazan cloth—Congolese uh, refer to that as as West African clothing. Um, so, West Africans and in, in general and Malians in particular sort of chose to stood out by being even more uh, uh, observant of. Uh, a kind of dress code even more observant of their uh, religious practices becoming more culturally conservative and and sort of wanting to hang on to the ways of the old country in in a manner that people back home in in Bamako for example weren't doing and and one way I can illustrate that contrast in Bamako you see uh, women wearing trousers all the time um, and in Brazzaville, you see women wearing trousers, but they're all Congolese. You would not see a Malian woman in Brazzaville wearing trousers. Uh, that would that would cause a, a, a scandal uh, for her family. So there are certain things that a woman could do in her in her hometown back in West Africa that she probably wouldn't be able to do as a member of the immigrant uh, population in Brazzaville.
1: And that's very interesting because another thing that I uh, that that I picked up on. Picked up on in the book is the way that, if you were a, an emigrant to somewhere, it allowed you to escape certain traditions of where you are from, for instance, when you talk about um, a hierarchy of dignified work and and being able to do econo- to, to perform economic functions that you wouldn 't be allowed to to do at, at home, uh, for instance, selling some menial goods or, or sweets or candies for instance that that would be seen as below your station. Back home in in West Africa, but you're allowed to do that in Brazzaville, where of course you can earn the money that you would that would be denied to you back home.
0: Right, uh, and I found that 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 is a, an area, particularly with respect to labor, where some of those traditions and mores from the old country get left aside. Um, one example that I can cite is uh, uh, Dogon people who come from you know a very well known and sort of uh, colorful. Ethnic group in Mali, um, when they when they go abroad, uh, well, in their home in their home communities, they belong to a kind of social hierarchy. There, are, there, there's a, a, a hereditary group, a kind of caste, if you will, uh, people who become blacksmiths, and only the members of that caste can work with metal. But when they emigrate, when they go abroad to find work any of them can work with metal Uh, they wouldn't dare do it in their home communities but that taboo falls away once they leave home and it becomes possible for them to do types of labor that would have been either seen as demeaning or unsuitable for various cultural reasons for them to perform back home now when they're in in Congo or Cameroon or Cote d'Ivoire wherever they happen to be um those those uh, types of labor are now available to them and accessible um, but there there are other there are other forms of work which don't really have to do with cultural taboo but just sort of a sense of say I guess you could call it shame like to be a, a, a street vendor is not necessarily seen by by uh, many people in West Africa as a worthy occupation and and it brings a, a certain social stigma to it and you wouldn't want to be for example, uh, going around in your home community uh, selling uh, selling food as an ambulant vendor. But if you go abroad to a place where people don't know you, um, then it's perfectly acceptable, and there's no social downside to it. You don't sort of lose face with any of your uh, any members of your your social and kin network because you're doing this job.
1: And you can earn the money, of course. That was one and, of the reasons of course, for going can there.
0: Earn the money, and there was a really interesting a uh, fellow that I, I wrote about in the book uh, a Cameroonian actually who, who I met selling sandwiches and he walked around with a tray of sandwiches on his head and I said why did you come to Congo to sell sandwiches when you could have stayed in Cameroon and done it there and he said well people in Cameroon in, in my hometown they would feel sorry for me they say, say oh, look at the son of a respectable father reduced to selling bread in the streets um, but in Congo he didn't have to worry about that, and he found he could actually save up a fair amount of money um, probably more than say a Congolese policeman would would have received as his monthly salary um, this you know entrepreneurial young man was able to to save up that amount of money every month um, A Congolese wouldn't have been willing to do that job um, even though the economic reward might have been a little more than what he could have had in the formal sector Uh, there are certain jobs in the congolese economy that are just seen as uh... reserved for foreigners and particularly reserved for uh... west africans
1: how were the migrants seen by the Congolese? Because they do obviously fulfil a bit of a function, um, selling sandwiches or or whatever throughout the whole of the economy. But at the same time, it, it, there is a, a, a tension in the relationship. You you mentioned the uh, the difference in religion, for instance, but uh, more generally, uh, how were they seen?
0: It's a very ambivalent relationship, and I want to point out that you know congo is a fairly hospitable place and there have never been sort of xenophobic outbreaks of violence there uh... against west africans Uh, it's not a place uh... where there's a sort of history of violent conflict between uh, local people and and foreigners but at the same time there there is tension as you said between the hosts and the strangers. and um, Part of it has to do with the economic role that these strangers occupy and the the fact that they're they're there to make money um, and they're not embedded in the same sorts of uh, you know, social reciprocity that that, uh, local people are. Um, And stemming from that, there's this sort of suspicion among Congolese that West Africans are are sort of uh, like parasitic that they're they're draining money away from from the Congolese economy and then they're sending it abroad to to build their houses and to to invest back in their home countries and so the the Congolese often see the 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 West Africans as kind of a mixed blessing on the one hand they they do these jobs that that Congolese won't do and they perform uh, a role or a service that Congolese can't or won't perform. But on the other hand, they're, they're often seen to be uh, doing harm to the, the, the Congolese economy as a whole and maybe uh, out competing Congolese and and uh, you know, denying them opportunities that, that would otherwise be rightfully theirs. I think there's a tendency to exaggerate that negative side. Um, and mm-hmm. to exaggerate the, the, the negative impact that, that the immigrants are having economically. I think when, uh, when you ask the West Africans about their presence, they see themselves as, as doing a great service to the Congolese. They, they were uh, the people who really helped re-dynamize the, uh, the retail sector in Brazzaville after the civil wars of the 1990s. They came mm-hmm. in and helped... Uh, rebuild the uh, structures that had been damaged and resurface the roads that had been